I want to focus the next two Sundays on uh, the simple story of Jesus' birth. Uh, you know, the greatest gift at Christmas is the gift of the Savior. And um, that gift must be received. And I realize that there's a lot that goes on at Christmas and there's a lot of things that we as a church may even say in the midst of this season. Uh, but the simple message is that God entered history uh, in the person of Jesus Christ to be our Savior, uh, to make us have the capability of being reconciled to God. And so at the very heart of the, the Christmas message is the gift of the Savior and really the invitation uh, that the Savior has been given, but the Savior must be received. And so uh, in the midst of everything else, just know that Christmas is all about the proclamation of the Savior who came. I think of the scripture in Galatians 4, 4. It ties into my sermon. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, I love that phrase, but when the fullness of time had come. There's a reason that Jesus came when he did. And, and I think many times maybe in the midst of our lives and 2,000 years passing uh, that we don't realize that the reality of that Christmas is as significant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And I hope that you experience that in this Christmas season. Um, there is a, there's a number of dynamics to the Christmas story. And I want us to turn, and you can look in your Bibles or we will have it on the screen, but in, in Luke chapter 2, we have the story of Jesus' birth. There are other stories and other Gospels but if you just want to know the story of Jesus' birth, it's in Luke chapter 2. In fact, if you are going to gather as a family and you want to read the Christmas story when you gather, I would suggest you go to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. That's where the story of the birth of Jesus is. And I looked at that, that this year and I said, you know, God, what is it that you would speak to us about? And there's some things this Sunday and next Sunday I want to share with you. Uh, but the reality is... When I looked at the story fresh in the last couple of weeks, what I saw is that God was at work not only in a global sense. Yeah, there's the big picture. Jesus is the Savior of the world. But when I began to read the story, I realized that also it was more than that, that God was working at the personal level in the simplest of people. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Next Sunday, I want to look at maybe the second half of the story. And I want to talk about how heaven entered the global, the personal, and all of it converges for the most significant event in all of human history. Um, I want to read the first 20 verses of Luke 2 this morning. And then I want us to focus for a few minutes on the first seven verses. But this is the story of the birth of Jesus. And it came to pass in those days 
that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was that when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these sayings which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. In the first three verses of Luke chapter 2, it says, if we just go back and look at that, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. The Christmas story starts with a scene in which God is working globally. God works his purposes globally. And that's really the starting point. In fact, when we read those three verses, uh, the phrase, the name, the concept, the idea that jumps out from the pages is the name Caesar Augustus. And it says that all of these things came about not only during the days of Caesar Augustus, but God was even engineering the circumstances of his decree. Now, I had to do a little bit of research about Caesar Augustus. Um, But the more research I did, the more I realized uh, that Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the world at this point in human history. Not only the most powerful man in the world, but he is, I think, 
He is the most powerful man in the world because he ruled over uh, the world's largest kingdom, the Roman Empire. And you need to see this to understand what it is that God was doing that Caesar Augustus is the most powerful man in the, in the world. Um, he, um, I wrote this in my notes. Uh, he was a legend in his own mind. Uh, and that, that's somewhat of a, a statement. That's just, that's Daryl Smith's kind of jab, I think. Reality is, is he was a legend in a lot of people's mind in the first century. He is the most powerful man in the world. Um, he, he was originally born uh, Octavius. Uh, Caesar Augustus is not his name. Uh, Caesar Augustus is his title. So he is Caesar. He's the second of the Caesars. The first of the Caesars is Julius Caesar. Um, his, uh, I think, great uncle, he, Julius Caesar, adopts Octavius. And Octavius, when, C, uh, when Julius Caesar is murdered, uh, he, he seizes power. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so he's, his, Caesar is his sort of his family name and his title. It's kind of like Pharaoh in Egypt. But uh, we don't use the word a lot. We don't use the word August a lot. But August is a word that means to be revered, uh, exalted, uh, impressive. And so uh, this is where I kind of got in this idea of I don't know if he nicknamed himself or if other people called him Caesar Augustus. Uh, actually, he was the first Caesar that decided that he needed to be worshipped as a god. So this is kind of in his mindset. This is uh, where he is. Um, there was a time in human history, in, in, in his reign, in which um, to honor Caesar Augustus, they changed one of the 12 months of the year after him. August. There's a whole story here. I really don't have time for this, but it's kind of intriguing. I think it gets kind of into his mindset. They had done the same thing for Julius Caesar. Julius, July. How many days are there in July? It's 31. Um, and so when they're going to honor Caesar Augustus, they decide they're going to named the next month after him. August didn't originally, you can Google this, and some of it may be true even. Uh, uh, originally, August didn't have 31 days, but Caesar Augustus decided if Julius Caesar for July got 31 days, then I want 31 days. Before that, they'd kind of alternated between 31 and 30, but he, just said, he decided August. Am I right on that? August has 31 days? Yeah. And so they... Um, uh, they took one of the days from February. Google it. I, I, some of this may be true. I don't know. It's in Wikipedia. Everybody knows that's true. Uh, but you, you kind of get in this mindset. This is a man they named a month after. But what you need to understand is that he is the most powerful man in the world because he rules over the most expansive kingdom. I'm about to make a statement. Julius Caesar reigns over the most expansive kingdom in human history. There was never a kingdom that was ex as expansive as the Roman Empire. Before this, the Roman Empire would never be this large. 
Do you understand? This was a man that they deified. They called the August One, who ruled over the most expansive kingdom in human history. And so when it describes in these verses that a decree went out that all the world should be registered, from a Roman perspective, it was all the known world. The expanse of the Roman kingdom during Caesar Augustus' time was from Great Britain all the way to Parthia, which would be modern-day Iran. And obviously, Great Britain wasn't Great Britain at the time, but that region, what we know uh, in the modern times. This was such a time that the Roman Empire seized control of the world that there was a phrase that was attributed to Caesar Augustus' time. It was, it's called the Pax Romana, which Latin, somebody was asking me Latin. Somebody was asking me Latin this morning at breakfast. Yeah, that was kind of like, yeah, I know a little Latin, very little Latin. Um, but Pax Romano is a Latin phrase that means Roman peace. It describes of how they so took control that there was this period of peace and stability in the known world. The other thing the Roman Empire did is they, they built this elaborate uh, system of roads that facilitated travel and, and military campaigns and all kinds of things, roads that still exist today. Uh, do you understand? Caesar Augustus is a big deal. The most powerful man in the world who ruled over the most expansive human kingdom in human history. And so when it says that a decree went out for Caesar, from Caesar Augustus, it's a big deal. He has authority. It goes into all of the known world. And it describes here that the decree was that all the world should be registered. I want you to understand they were registered for tax purposes. They were creating a role so then they could, they could tax the people. Um, but there's another phrase in here that's a little bit hidden that quite honestly it would be easy for us to skip over that is the key to the whole passage and it's actually the first phrase in verse 1 where it says and it came to pass it came to pass uh, it is a phrase that is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament and it came to pass and it came to pass and it came to pass um, it's not just a phrase of transition. For the biblical writers, particularly in the Old Testament, the phrase, it came to pass, is code language. There is something that the biblical writers are communicating in the scriptures when they say, and it came to pass. It's code for this idea that behind the scenes of all of the circumstances that they are des describing, there is a sovereign God's hand who is dictating circumstances. That's what the Hebrews meant. That was what was in the back of their minds. 
and they will tell a story and they will be going along with the details and then all of a sudden they will say and it came to pass and it's this code language that speaks of the sovereign invisible hand of God who is moving the circumstances of human history even though it is not evident to human beings so significant in this story because it wasn't just that the most powerful man and the most expansive kingdom in all of human history made a decree for the biblical writers no it only came to pass because of the invisible sovereign mysterious behind-the-scenes God who was moving the heart of the most powerful man in the world for his purposes. There's a mystery there. Uh, I think about what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21, verse 1. He says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God is so great. God is so powerful that he moves the mind, the heart, and the hands of the most powerful people in all the world. And when we read the Christmas story, we start there. That all the circumstances that will converge and collide into the most significant event in all of human history, it was God who was engineering those circumstances, and it came to pass. There's something else, though, in that phrase, and it came to pass. Not only is there this idea of the sovereign hand of God behind the scenes dictating these events, but there is in that phrase, and it came to pass, a sense of timing. And I, that was what originally triggered that verse in Galatians 4, 4, when it said, but when the fullness of time had come. It's not just that God is working his, his purposes out. God is working out his purposes in his time. And there's something quite amazing as we read this story of the timing of it all, and we'll get there when we look at those next four verses. It came to pass that God was moving from a human perspective behind the scenes invisibly that quite honestly the people of his day would have never come to the conclusion when Caesar Augustus says all the world should be taxed and everybody has to go back to their place of origin. I don't think there were many human beings that said, oh, God is in this. God is up to something big. I don't think anyone said the most significant single event in all of human history is about to transpire and God is engineering the circumstances. Do you know why? Because the people 2,000 years ago, just like us, looked from a human perspective 
and we see powerful people making moves. And that's all we see. You know, church, one of the things I wanted to share with you today before we leave this point is this truth is not only true for 2,000 years ago, it's true today. Well, I tell you what, Daryl Smith needed to hear that. Because <laughs> sometimes I look around and I go, good grief, we're messed up here. And it's like the powerful people of our world just kind of work their purposes. And if we're not careful, we will forget what has been said through the inspired scriptures for centuries. And it came to pass that behind the scenes of it all, God is sovereign. Don't ever think that our world has lost God's control. I know, I know it appears that way to us from a human worldly perspective. But take heart, not only is God, and, and think about it, this is not good. The Roman Empire oppressed the people of their day and were taxing them. Nobody sees God in this, but God was all up in it. God was working his purposes because God is the one who moves the hearts of kings. And so don't ever think that God has somehow, even in our day, lost control. But know that God is working. And here's the thing that Daryl Smith has to be reminded of. God has his time. And it came to pass. God works his purposes globally. It was true in Luke 2. It's true today. So I want you to get this idea. God works globally. God was working in the heart of the most powerful man in all the world. But there's something else when I read the Christmas story in the last two weeks. It's not just that God is working globally, because I don't, I don't know what that does to you. And there is a certain sense of trust that Daryl Smith has that God is carrying out his plan. But there is something else in the story that not only does God work his purposes globally, but here it is, God also works his purposes personally. In the midst of that, and we think... So there is, there's kind of some balance in here that somehow you can think, oh, God is so big that I don't matter. Or you could think, God, God, I matter to God, but God's not big enough to change things globally. No, both of them are true. God works his purposes globally, but God also works his purposes personally. And we see that in the scripture in the next, in the first word of verse four when it says, Joseph. I'm telling you, there could not be a greater contrast from a human perspective between Caesar Augustus and Joseph. And it says in those verses that Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. The contrast between Caesar Augustus and Joseph and Mary is as stark a contrast as you can imagine. On the social scale, Caesar Augustus is up here, and Mary and Joseph are, are quite honestly as low as you can get. And there's a point that God is making in the midst of the story. Uh, everything in the story speaks of Mary and Joseph's lowly position in life. Mary and Joseph were the commonest of peasants in their day. Um, there's some little details that communicate this later in the story when it talks about they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Uh, I know we kind of fill in some blanks of this story of what that must have been like and coming to Bethlehem. And, but here's, when it uses the term manger, um, it's speaking of a feeding trough, okay? It's going to say it again later in the story. This is significant. Anytime God gives details, the details are important. Manger. I know we say it all the time. It's a feeding trough. Where did they lay their baby? In a manger, in a feeding trough. They didn't have a crib. They didn't have any preparation. They didn't have anything uh, when we were in the Holy Land. I have pictures today from the Holy Lands. Aren't you all excited? Some of you visual learners. Brother Shane, this is your time in the sermon. Uh, do we have the picture of the manger? We were passing through one of our sites, and there's a manger. It's not exactly what our manger looks like in our nativity scene. It, uh, well, there's a reason, because um, the, the stable was not a wood structure, it would have been a cave in Bethlehem. This is true in Nazareth. It was true in the city of Bethlehem. would have been true outside the city of Bethlehem. I have three pictures from the shepherd's fields. Uh, this is outside the traditional site where the angels appear to the shepherd, which is next Sunday, not this Sunday, but you can see this. Can we show that first picture? So there's, um, there's this is the outside of the cave, and of course there's been uh, the bricks that have been added. But this is a cave. Where did the shepherds take their sheep? They took them into a cave. They didn't have a wood structure. So this is the outside. The inside, that's from a previous trip. If the boxes are looking at that going, hmm, that looks like summertime there. That wasn't even our trip at all. But there's David Cooey right there. Tell that boy he showed up at church this morning, okay? Uh, but this is the cave inside there in the shepherd's field where they would have kept their sheep. Uh, third picture. I think I just flip it around, and this is kind of the entrance, and of course there's an altar, and there's the door going out. But it's a cave. So where would the feeding trough, what would the, that's all, that's it. Uh, what's the, the feeding trough? Some of you, hey, some of y'all need to listen to my words now, okay? The pictures are over. Okay, that was the best part of the sermon. Sorry about that. Um, no, the, the manger would have been, a rock structure would have been cut in the side of that cave, and that's where the baby would have been laid. It denotes that they were the commonest of peasants and they were in the place where they kept the animals because there was no room for them in the inn. Let me tell you, 
If they had money, they would have made it happen. But they're the commonest of peasants. They don't have enough money. The other thing is they had come back to Bethlehem, which is their family place. They don't have any family connections. There should have been family that took them in. These people are as low on the social scale as you can imagine. They have no family connections. Uh, they do not have the money. They end up in the place where the animals are, and they place the babe in a manger. Uh, everything we see in the story speaks of the lowly position of Mary and Joseph. Not only that, but in a larger scale, they were, they were a part of people, the people, the Jews, who were controlled, even oppressed by the Romans. Um, they had... They were so oppressed that the Roman emperor could tell them to go from their town of Nazareth to Bethlehem, where they were from, uh, and they had to obey. Uh, they were also in a precarious circumstance in their life. Um, Mary was in her third trimester. I think this is our life group lesson, so I'm so, next week, so I'm sorry, teachers. I'm taking all the good material. Just lead in prayer and dismiss next Sunday. Um, I, I, think, I think Mary, I, I, just, I, I don't know if precarious is the best word here. Um, I, I think there was a time that when Joseph got word that they, he had to go to Bethlehem, that Mary said, I think it's a good time in my third trimester under the circumstances that I just leave town with you. You would think, ah, girl, your, your third trimester, why are you making a trip on the donkey, as we imagine, from Nazareth to Bethlehem? I think it was a good time for her to get out of town, quite honestly. So they are the commonest of people, controlled by a foreign government, in the most precarious circumstances in life, her in her third trimester. But this is what you got to see in the story. With all that being said in verse 6, in my New King James Version, it says, so it was. This phrase, so it was, is identical to the phrase in verse 1 when it says, and it came to pass. As the gospel writer is telling the story of the birth of Jesus, he thinks about the global aspect, and it came to pass at the global level. But when it, you got to get this, when it comes to the personal level, also the phrase and it came to pass you're not going to believe it that God got Mary and Joseph to the very place that the prophets had prophesied that the Christ child would be born which is Bethlehem all decreed by Caesar Augustus whose heart is moved by a sovereign hand of God who works behind the scenes to bring them to that very place you're not going to believe this but they came at the very time when and it was time for her to deliver. You see, God is not only sovereign and working out his purposes at a global level, but God is also working out in the personal level. 
And it's not just that God is working. As a part of his working behind the scenes, that invisible hand of God, there's also this amazing sense of God's timing at the personal level. Yes, at the global level, but also at the personal level. And even though I want to share the other verses, I'm going to do that next Sunday. And you're going to see one other dimension that converges here. But this morning, the two are this global realm that God is working out his purposes in and then this personal level. And at least at this point, this Sunday, those two, the global and the personal, converge for the most significant event in all of human history, the birth of Jesus Christ. Do you know how I know that? We divide time. B.C. and A.D. based on the birth of this child. You know what amazes me? In a time when Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man and the most expansive kingdom in all of human history, there is a baby born to a peasant couple whose birth divides human history. God not only works his purposes globally, but he works his purposes personally. The only thing of significance for Mary and Joseph in the story is that they were from the house of David. It was the very thing that brought them to Bethlehem. There is one other little hidden nugget in there. I'm going to have to cover it next week. It is the swaddling clothes. The swaddling clothes. Anytime the scriptures give you details, the details are important. And when Luke is recording the story for Mary, it's, no, the child was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. Later in the story, and I read it, when the angel says, two signs, you'll find the babe in a manger, yes, but you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Um, that's my tease for next week. I don't know if it'll be enough to get you back. <laughs> but for the scriptural writer, these little nuggets begin to speak to the significance of this child who would be born. You know what I realized today is I want us to take heart that God works at the global level. Take heart. <laughs> God has not lost control. His hands are still on the wheels even when it doesn't look like that. But I also want you to know that God is not just working on the global level, he's working in the personal level. I would say to you today that the same God who had a purpose for Mary and Joseph is a God who's so big, who has a he has a purpose for your life. Quite honestly, that may be a harder truth for you to grasp than that God is working behind the scenes globally. Why would God look on that peasant couple with any more favor than he would look on you and I? Yeah, I understand their purpose in life was a little bit different probably than ours, okay? 
But God is so great that he has a purpose for your life. And in the midst of the mess, this is the other thing. Do you think Mary and Joseph saw the big picture and knew what God was engineering in these circumstances? I, I think they knew a little bit from the angels. But it's like Joseph's just saying, hey, we've got to go to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus. I don't even know if they're thinking about Micah 5, 2 and the prophecy. I, I don't know. And so I think it's so, many, it's so true in our lives that many times we, in the midst of the mess and the details, we don't have this sense that God, that invisible hand of God is moving not just at a global level but at a personal level. And so I want you to know that the reason God works at the personal level is because he loves each one of you. And he loves me. And he has a purpose and a plan for our life. And we know this because the baby that was born was to be the savior of all the world who includes you and me. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Uh, As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, uh, Brother Shaman and the music team are going to come and lead us in one final song. I want you to know that the greatest gift of Christmas is the gift of the Savior, but the Savior must be received. I couldn't imagine a more significant step that you could take today than to give your life to Jesus Christ, who is the only way of salvation. He is is the only Savior that God ever sent. There is no other way. You're not going to save yourself. You're not going to be good enough. Daryl Smith's not going to be good enough. My only hope is the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ by his death on the cross. But that gift must be received. We're going to sing one final song at the end of this song. uh, Byron and Will and I are going to be at the front. We would love to talk to you about how do you receive the gift of the Savior. How do you give your life to Christ so that he changes not only your eternity but your life here and now. And so... Um, also during this song if you'd like to come and give your gift for world missions our box is at the front or you can give it after the service but this song is a time for you to encounter God and so Father today we thank you for the message of Christmas and the hope and the security it gives us but Father also the love that we experience knowing that God you personally are working in our lives whoever we are and so, Father, we, uh, we love you and just pray that you'd speak to our hearts this Christmas season. And, Father, we give you this time and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.